Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, this is a holiday special episode. How'd it go? Three of my favorite ETH bulls who I have learned so much from throughout my time in Ethereum. I'm so happy to have gotten them on the Bankless podcast to have a nice holiday discussion about our favorite asset, Ether, and our favorite economy, Ethereum. We think that this is going to be a fantastic episode for you guys to listen to while you guys are at home with your family so you can hear the familiar voices of DC Investor, from the ETH Finance Discord, and then also Eric Connor and Anthony Cezano from the ETH Hub podcast. Uh, I had just a f- fantastic time talking about all the amazing different features of Ethereum and Ether, the asset, and I'm, I'm sure this is going to be an absolute blast for you to listen to as well. If you want to stop spending your fiat on Ether, this is not the podcast to listen to. David, I feel like we should put a warning above. This is very bullish material. It's not for everybody. Not everyone can handle the bullishness in this episode. It was an absolute blast recording it. So let's just go ahead and get right into the episode. But first, we're going to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. When you own crypto, what really matters is the security and ownership over your assets. Being a part of the bankless nation means having complete sovereignty over your crypto. The easiest way to do that is with a Ledger hardware wallet. A hardware wallet is a little device that manages your private keys for you so you don't have to worry about proper private key management. Your Ledger hardware wallet keeps your private keys private, but still lets you have easy access to your right, crypto. Now let's the combination the of my Ledger DC, hardware Eric wallet Connor and MetaMask and lets Susana. me store my crypto assets in the most safe way possible, but still lets me easily access Uniswap or all the other DeFi apps that I use on a daily basis. If you already have a Ledger wallet, you can use the Ledger Live app to participate in some of the money verbs that we discuss in the Bankless program. The Ledger Live app is your headquarters for managing your personal crypto finance. It's a great tool to manage the assets you hold on your Ledger, as well as receive a portfolio summary of all the assets that you have stored. Using the Ledger Live app, you can buy Bitcoin, Ether, and stablecoins and have it sent directly to your Ledger hardware wallet, skipping over the trusted exchanges and getting your assets into your control. You can even use the Ledger Live app to swap crypto assets natively inside of the app, so you never need to send your crypto assets away from your Ledger to make a trade. Buying a Ledger is like buying a fire extinguisher. The best time to get one was yesterday, especially if you're doing something silly, like holding your crypto in a hot wallet that's always connected to the internet. If you haven't gained full control over your crypto yet, go to the link in the show notes and get your Ledger today. If you are looking for the front page of DeFi, look no further than Zerion.io. Zerion is your home base for managing your DeFi portfolios. Zerion offers a central place for you to engage with all of the DeFi protocols and assets that you engage with on a daily basis, but all in one central spot. I've loaded up a wallet and Zerion is giving me the portfolio performance of all the assets in this wallet over time, as well as a breakdown of all the assets that I own, as well as all of my transaction history that I've ever done in an easy to view fashion. Zerion also lets you invest right into DeFi's best yielding financial opportunities right from their homepage. Zerion also makes it super easy to access interest in DeFi using applications like Compound and Aave in the background. And you can also exchange your assets using the Zerion app, using an exchange aggregator in the background to make sure that you always get the best rates. 
You can even use the Xerion mobile wallet to add your MetaMask or Argent or another Ethereum address right into your mobile wallet so you can see your portfolio and engage in DeFi on the go. Here I just loaded up my Argent wallet and now I'm going to load up my MetaMask as well. And Xerion will do the same thing. It will add all of my assets and wallets together all in one space and give me a portfolio summary of what's going on. Adding wallets is trivially easy. If you already have a MetaMask, you can get it right into the Xerion app and it can sync with your desktop app as well. And the best part is you can also buy Ether right into the app itself. Use the invest tab to look at all the things that you have invested in as well as other opportunities. And coming soon to the Xerion app is the ability to buy and sell your assets straight from your mobile device. So download the app. It works on iOS and Android. Go to Xerion.io, plug in your wallets and get a historical report of your portfolio over time, as well as a comprehensive breakdown of all the assets that you own and how much yield they're generating for you. Bankless Nation, we've been waiting for this episode for a long time. We have got the three most bullish people we could find, other than David and myself, about Ether on today. We've got Eric Connor, Anthony Sassano, DC Investor. These folks were bulls when it was not popular to be bullish ETH. They've been through the, tra the trenches of the bear market. We are out the other side in what looks to be the beginning of a bull market, and we are here to talk about why they are bullish ethereum the network and eth the asset gentlemen fantastic to have you on bankless how's everyone doing fantastic thanks Ryan. doing good thanks for having us doing great you know what i'm going to start actually with uh dc so we want this to be kind of a canonical ethereum episode that people can refer to and uh that provides some context on what ethereum and ether actually is could could you kind of start us off DC, what is Ethereum to you? How would you explain it to someone off the street? Well, well, off the street is a tough ask, but I'll do my best. And I, I always the way that I think of Ethereum is that it is a it's a network that provides a programmable and globally shared ledger of record. So it's kind of like this. It is this database for really important fiduciary grade data, um, which everyone in the world can access and anyone can write to permissionlessly and in a censorship resistant way. So that at its most at its core, that's what it is. But the real question is, what does it allow? And I think what it allows is it allows this economic coordination um, across anybody um, anywhere in the world and and that's a really powerful concept and and you see that embodied in modern day DeFi as well um, and as far as the types of properties that ethereum has and what it could mean i think ethereum will become home to the world's most important digital assets the ones that really have financial value and most importantly it's home to ether um, which i believe and i know we're going to talk about today is going to become the world's most important programmable decentralized asset. In fact, I think it already is. Um, and that programmability is why I think ETH is also going to emerge as a very important macro asset alongside Bitcoin, as we've already seen. Um, and, and I think it's kind of in a class of one or two. And we're already seeing that with billionaires piling in to, 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 to Bitcoin and into Ether, and now we're seeing CME future. So the path for Ethereum looks incredibly bright. DC, do you think it's hard for people to get their like heads wrapped around with with bitcoin like there's just one name right you say bitcoin it's a network it's also an asset 
But with Ethereum, you sort of have to explain, okay, well, there's this thing called Ethereum the network, and just as you explained it, and then there's this other thing called Ether the asset, and both are important. Is the Ethereum narrative just like hard to understand, or do you think this cycle people mainstream investors will begin to understand why both the network and the asset are important. Yeah, I mean, I do think in some ways the narrative is certainly harder to understand than Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is a pretty simple narrative. It's a scarce supply, censorship resistant digital asset. And I think Ethereum has some of those same properties as well, but Ethereum does a lot of other stuff. And I think the concept of like, what is a smart contract and what does that enable is difficult for a lot of people to understand unless you get into the technical details. So at its core, you know, when I really think about it, I view Ether as programmable money and 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 i think that you know i've 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 discussed it that way with some people outside of the space and i think that resonates with them it's this decentralized programmable money where you can run applications that no one controls and, and you can manipulate that value to do all kinds of incredible things um, i do think that the space is also going to become more sophisticated during this cycle just i mean it took people a cycle or two to really understand bitcoin let's not forget that and i would argue that it was really only in the 2017 cycle that people really came to understand what bitcoin is prior to that it was kind of more of a play toy for nerds and i think ethereum has been at that stage but we're about to hit this moment where ethereum is going to enter the zeitgeist um, during this cycle and I'm, I'm really excited about that i think what dc just said is important to understand and like i'll go you know yeah it's been six seven years on the ethereum journey now and it, i think what we've realized is that takes narratives a while to not only be realized, but to take form. So Bitcoin's been around over, what, 10 years now or something like that. And they kind of went through these, at first it was like peer-to-peer -peer cash. And then like it's gone through these like seven narrative changes. And one of the most fascinating things to me about this current bull cycle we're going on is Bitcoin has seemed to have won the digital gold narrative. And I, you know, that's, that's cool. We're here to talk about Ethereum though, but what, what, what can we learn from that? It's that that narrative and DC was just talking about this was not really understood until basically today. It took them four or five years to figure that out and for, you know, the mainstream to adopt that. And I think Ethereum is two to three years behind in the DeFi narrative. And I think personally that the DeFi narrative is 10 to 20 times more powerful than the digital gold narrative, but it's also a little bit more complicated, right? And I've recently been saying and tweeting and thinking about, you know, how do we explain Ethereum to people? I think of it as think about the internet, but the internet for finance and ETH is that money used on the internet of finance. And I think as we kind of hone in onto this narrative and a lot of people will say, you know, it's complicated to explain which it is, you know, why isn't the narrative perfect yet? It's because we're still pretty young, right? And like, even once you find that narrative, you need to kind of like have other people understand it and, you know, sell it. maybe not the right term, but you do kind of have to sell it to people that don't understand it. Right. So I think, you know, to me, I've, I've said before multiple times when I first saw Ethereum, this concept of DeFi, this concept of financial money, you know, being transacted easily across the internet was what captured me. It wasn't the world computer. Maybe that's 10 or 20 years down the line. Um, but I think Ethereum's growing into its own and that we've, we have found our narrative. We're kind of like, you know, sculpting it now and like soon 
we're, we're embarking on the early stages of pitching it and what it is. Um, and you know, it, it's not just a marketing tactic. Like it is powerful being your own bank, having someone not tell you what financial transaction you can do or, you know, and not like shutting you down or whatever, like that is extremely powerful. There, there was debates on Twitter today about what is cypherpunk. I don't think Bitcoin's cypherpunk at all. I think cypherpunk is having true privacy solutions, being your own bank. Bitcoin offers none of that. They can be digital gold. That's fine. They're layer two as banks, but Ethereum's looking for something bigger. It's just going to take a little longer to get there. And I'm totally fine with that. Anthony, so Eric's saying, so is, so is DC that uh, Ethereum and Ether is sort of a, maybe a cycle behind Bitcoin in terms of its narrative understanding maybe three or four years. Would you agree with that? And what would you add to the, the definition of Ethereum and Ether? Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And I think it's not even just in terms of like narratives and awareness. It's also in terms of, in terms of like, I guess, price and market cap of these kind of assets too. It seems that ETH, uh, you know, you just looking at the charts seems to be following, you know, Bitcoin's last cycle. And it's just, it, it's, it's crazy when you look at it like that, because the you know the supplies of the coins are different it's not like a one-to-one mapping right but magically the prices are, are similar right um and and it seems like we're just one cycle behind uh in terms of like i guess price but awareness as well and i've been saying this for for a little while now but i think you know bitcoin owns the macro narrative right you know when you think of crypto as someone outside of crypto you're thinking of bitcoin that's the first thing you hear about it's the first thing you're going to go and investigate you're going to learn about uh, and it's a much easier thing to wrap your head around, right? But then once you venture into crypto, pretty much everything is happening in Ethereum, right? Bitcoin becomes the boring asset or the boring network within within crypto. Uh, if you want to get involved in, and get more excited about something, then you venture onto Ethereum. Then you fall down that rabbit hole and you have DeFi, right? Which is an, just another even a rabbit hole within the rabbit hole. So... That's kind of what I've been uh, kind of explaining to people, especially newer people that I talk to, is that get to learn about Bitcoin, get to know Bitcoin, understand what it is, and then go and venture into Ethereum and you'll never go back. Like, I, I, I don't see how you can fall down the Ethereum rabbit hole and then go back to, to, to being only Bitcoin after that. Um, you know, maybe there's a few people that have done that, but the majority of people that I talk to don't. Um, and that's just better. Uh, uh, that's just going to increase the awareness of Ethereum and, and increase kind of like the the social consciousness of, of Ethereum. Uh, and we're going to have more and more people being evangelists for it. And then it, it goes from like Bitcoin being the only kind of thing that the media talks about, um, the mainstream media at least, to, to Ethereum being alongside it. And I think we're already seeing that happen. DC, uh, DC uh, kind of mentioned that these billionaires are investing in BTC, right? These funds and everything. But they're also investing in ETH. If you had told me a couple years ago that this would be happening for BTC, I would have said, yeah, that's that 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 makes sense, right? I, I can kind of see that. For ETH, oh God, no, no. Two years ago, ETH was viewed as a joke, right? As, as an asset, because we just came off the ICO boom. It was a bear market. ETH was getting kind of like destroyed in that market. And if you had told me that billionaire fund managers was going to be buying ETH alongside BTC, that would have been a crazy notion. So I guess I think we've already come so far and I think that it's not going to take us as long as it took Bitcoin because we have that that kind of infrastructure already laid out, that consciousness already laid out. You know, crypto to the mainstream is now becoming like an inevitability. It's not like, will it work? Is it a fad or, or stuff like that? People are accepting that they were wrong about Bitcoin, right? They were wrong about um, Bitcoin going away and going to zero and they're capitulating. And I feel like that's going to happen with, with Ethereum a lot quicker because people aren't going to get the wrong idea. They're, they're already going to accept that these networks can exist 
And then once they see Ethereum, they're not gonna have those initial doubts anymore. They're gonna be like, oh, okay, this is like Bitcoin, but you can do all of this stuff with it. So I think, yeah, we're, we're one cycle behind, but it's gonna be faster to play out at this point. So each of us have mentioned price a few times and in kind of your intro, Anthony, uh, you were talking about price, maybe price being sort of a market cycle behind uh, Bitcoin. But some would argue that like in Ethereum, the price of ETH doesn't really matter. And I think there have been elements of the community, even the Ethereum community that have argued that over time, like Anthony, don't worry about like, don't be focused on price. Price doesn't matter for Ethereum. It's, it's about the technology. It's about the network. What is your response to that? Does price actually matter? And if so, why? Yeah, so if we take this price doesn't matter to its logical conclusion and you think, you know, money doesn't matter, right? Money doesn't buy happiness. Money isn't, isn't important, right? That, that, ma- that makes sense to me. But my, my pushback is that the, the money within the ecosystem, uh, as the number goes up, we have more money to build things with, right? We saw after DeFi summer, there was a couple months where a lot of people made a lot of money. And then uh, it was funny. I was talking to Eric about this on, on the Ether podcast. Like we were talking about fundraising, you know, multiple projects fundraising every week after that happened. Right. And why do you think that happened? Because people had more money. Like it's not a, it's not a hard thing to grasp. If people have more money, if people feel richer, they will reinvest um, that, that money. They're not just going to sit on it like some dragon hoarding its gold. Like, and I think, you know, that, that kind of plays into, uh, basically number go up being so important for, for the ecosystem, um, just for that reason alone. But there's also a bunch of other reasons, right? Like the security of the network goes up if ETH's price goes up, right? That's a fact. You cannot, you cannot argue against that, uh, in my view, right? Um, you know, it brings in new users as much as, you know, for better or worse, it brings in new users and maybe they come for speculative reasons. They stay for other reasons later on. I mean, I'm sure I'm not alone in saying this, but like I first got into it because I saw the price of, you know, kind of ETH going up and I was like, wow, okay. Um, I want to buy some, right. Before I even like jumped down the rabbit hole in 2017, I kind of bought it and then jumped down. Right. And the reason why it became on my radar is because my friend told me, Hey, you know, this ETH thing is going up. You should look into it right? So that's how a lot of people will get into the ecosystem. So if you're a builder, right? I I actually see this rhetoric a lot from like developers and builders and things like that, not to generalize, but that's who I kind of generally see it from. Um, But if you're, if you're that kind of person, just think like, okay, you know, how are you going to get funding for starters for the stuff that you're building, right? If there's no money around, then you're not going to get funding for it, right? And you want more users to come into the ecosystem so that they use your apps, so, I mean, it, it, it just, for me, it's like second nature to, to, to know that that price matters, but I, and, and I can't kind of square why people just don't think it matters. Even if you think that money doesn't matter, it, it doesn't matter. Like you, you personally can still hold that belief. You can think that money isn't everything and that's fine, but not everyone wants number to go up just to buy a Lambo, right? Or anything like that. Like, you know, for me personally, I made some investments after DeFi summer as well. Like I want to give back. I, I donated on Gitcoin. You see so many people donating on Gitcoin. The rounds are the biggest they've ever been, right? In terms of matching. So I just, I don't see how number go up can be viewed negatively unless you view it with the lens of, oh, everyone just wants to buy a Lambo. Everyone just wants to be rich and, and do extravagant things, which I think, especially within the Ethereum community is not true because we reinvest the money and we see that happening kind of every few months. Uh, when the, the cycles play out. Uh, so yeah, I guess long-winded way of saying that price matters 
pretty much more than anything, but not for the reasons that a lot of people think it, uh, it matters. An Ethereum or crypto skeptic could illustrate, and I've seen this illustration before of Ethereum, is that it's it's not this like internet native like economy. It's more of like this this kind of like private park where there's a bunch of like you know financial fun games being played. Like it's like a it's a it's a casino. It's like it's it's not really globally accessible, and you know it's more really really niche, and it's not it's not really going to be like this world financial platform. It's more of just like this kind of like money theme park that lives on the internet and it's just a bunch of toys that that's that's a, a a DeFi skeptic or ethereum skeptics take that i've heard um and the and so i, I want to ask the question is like when when you know eth price goes up and we're seeing all these seed investments into these DeFi projects into these different different ethereum protocols into these uh, things that are going on in the ethereum economy what are these things like? What are these? The every single entity that is uh, receiving funds are trying to solve a problem, right? And so when we view them holistically, what are these problems that we are trying to solve, right? Like what are, what are the problems that Ethereum is trying to solve? Uh, DC, let, let's let's turn to you. Like what are the overarching problems that uh, these people that are fundraising for projects or just building something on Ethereum, like generalized? What is the problem that that you know each individual team or project is trying to go after? So I think one of the crazy things about Ethereum is the breadth of problems that are being tackled on the platform. And some of those efforts are going to be successful. Some of them are going to be failed experiments. And right now, we don't know which ones are going to be which. But I think fundamentally, um, something that Ethereum tries to achieve is to um, remove this reliance on intermediaries which we have become very accustomed to in our financial lives and other parts of our lives as well. And when you think about the, the proliferation of entities like banks and how difficult they can be to deal with, um, other financial institutions, um, they can be inherently unreliable. And, it, and beyond that, it can also be difficult to do things between them, right? And so when you're working with a financial institution in a given type of account, oftentimes that account can't quickly talk to your account at a brokerage or something like that, right? And so you've got to send the money through some antiquated system, which can take days or on the weeks if things go wrong in some cases. And I think that is a problem um, because those intermediaries also extract rents in that process. And, and not to say that they don't provide value for service, but if we can do that cheaper, more reliably, more transparently on Ethereum, then why wouldn't we want to? Um, I think the other problem that Ethereum solves or, or is that it creates this new, I wouldn't say it's a problem that it solves, but it creates this new opportunity with Ether as an asset in particular. Um, the world has never seen a programmable decentralized asset with the characteristics of Ether. And especially when, and I know we're gonna talk later about like EIP-5, 1559 and fee burn and, and staking. I mean, that asset alone is going to create the potential for all kinds of services that frankly we can't imagine yet, right? I mean, who could have imagined, even if you read the Ethereum white paper, would you imagine that something like DAI um, from Maker would exist? you know, a few years later, um, based tapping into that decentralized value to create something and transmuting that value into something else. So, and I wanna kind of riff off of what Anthony was talking about with respect to price. Price is important because it's liquidity and liquidity in the system in the Ethereum economy allows us to do more things and do more impactful things um, that are relevant to the world. I'll add a little bit here. So it, it's, we always kind of think of like, 
what are we building for the end user, right? And I'll, I'll use this. I ran across this Hacker News um, post. Most people listening probably know what Hacker News is. It's a pretty popular message board around uh, among like developers and I guess hackers, right? Um, and it was like someone posted like, why, why does every developer I know these days somehow have a connection to Ethereum? And that like really hit home with me. And I think like when we talk about DeFi and like open finance and Ethereum being open, we should also realize that like not only are we building for the end users to be bankless and be able to you know transact however they want, but it also gives the ability for anybody sitting anywhere in the world to build a financial platform, to build a money Lego. Like there's no barrier for anybody, right? And like now you kind of be, need to be connected. You need to know like some accredited investors, some VCs and raise some money. You need to like have ends in the banking industry. Now some kid sitting in some random country, 15 years old or whatever, can fire up a piece of code and it becomes an essential money Lego on Ethereum. And I think... Like that is just as powerful as, you know, having censorship resistant transactions and being your own bank and things like that. And I, you know, I, I think the power we're really seeing is just this like crazy reach that Ethereum has. DC just said it, like we're tackling so many use cases on chain, but the fact that anybody can just spin up a line of code, no one's telling them no, is just fascinating to me. And I, I've been thinking about that post I saw on, on uh, Hacker News for the last few weeks. And I think it speaks to, I really do think almost all like younger developers have some toe dipped in the Ethereum ecosystem at this point, which is just insanely powerful. So Eric, like as we're maybe getting into DeFi a little bit and kind of the, the Ethereum economy, uh, it's, it seems very much that Ethereum's destiny is at least partially tied to the success of, of DeFi, right? There's also some competitors to DeFi too, right? So if you think about, uh, say, the Bitcoin ecosystem uh, and doing things on Bitcoin, um, a lot of the money verbs, as we might call them, on Bankless that, that you could do on, on Bitcoin, you, you do generally through a crypto bank, right? Through like a Coinbase or a Gemini. Coinbase is now recently launched, it looks like, the, the intent to, to IPO. That means a larger war chest that they'll have at their disposal. Um, how do you think this DeFi ecosystem of, of startups with some of the strengths that, that you you mentioned, but also like the weaknesses, right? I mean, these are like small developers, not necessarily a lot of budget, uh, harder in some ways user experience. At first, there's private key management, that sort of thing. How can they hope to compete against the crypto banks? Do you think DeFi versus crypto banks, do you think DeFi can come out ahead? Yeah, it's definitely an interesting battle to talk about. And I, I've always said, I think these universes are going to run in parallel for a while, mainly DeFi versus traditional banks. But I kind of, I'm putting Coinbase and those in the traditional banking industry at this point. Like to me, they're kind of just banks, right? They're more modern banks, these crypto banks. Um, I think, you know, it takes like having a bad experience in a traditional finance system to really start to understand the benefits of DeFi. So I, I don't think as like, you know, someone that lives in the U.S., a first world country, and doesn't have too many issues with banking and finance right now, other than, you know, I graduated around the time where the financial crisis was going through here, and it was hard to find a job. Other than that, you know, my banking life's pretty easy. Now, I think we, like, 
kind of get locked into this bubble sometimes of, wait, why would someone want a Bitcoin as a hedge to a monetary policy? Why would anybody want DeFi? There's a lot of people in the world that have hyperinflation currencies that have struggle to access a banking system, right? So I think it's going to start there and grow. Like, you know, I guess in the US, we could have inflation, we could have weakness in the dollar. We're starting to see a lot of like censorship around traditional financial transactions, regulations coming in. Those things can slowly creep in. And I think it's going to take like the younger generation to realize the benefits. Um, and sl- it's going to be the slow wave, right? I, I don't, I've never been one to expect like the next year is going to be like where DeFi takes over, right? I think this is a long play of these two systems running and slowly people start to see the benefits. And just with some of the other younger uh, generations finding benefits like technology and mobile apps and all this stuff that we've all witnessed over the last 20 years, they're going to slowly start to realize the benefits of, you know, being your own bank and having privacy and, and all that kind of good stuff. So uh, David Letterman had Bill Gates on in like 1994, and there's a clip on YouTube where like he, he's asking Bill Gates about the internet, right? And um, Bill Gates is kind of describing like, he's like, what, what do you do with the internet? And Bill Gates says, well, like, who, who knows? You can watch videos on it. You can listen to music on it. And Letterman says something like, like music. Like, do you mean like a radio? I mean, like, I already have that. So the audience laughs, right? But what he couldn't picture back in 1994 is something like Spotify, the access to the entire world's inventory of music on demand wherever you want it, right? Uh, maybe turning the question to, to, to Anthony, do you think that this is some of the promise of DeFi too? That like we've just invented these primitives that you guys have been talking about, these new money Legos, right? And so... We have the potential to leapfrog traditional finance and banks and their capabilities with this whole new thing that we've unlocked called programmable money. We haven't even seen the full extent of or can't even imagine the full extent of what's possible. Do you think there's an element of truth there? And and, uh, are there any examples that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think about this quite often. uh, And you you use the good example there with, with Bill Gates trying to describe the internet. I think in that moment or around that time, Bill Gates was like, this internet thing is going to change the world. I just don't know how. I know it's going to change the world. I just don't know what way it's going to, right? And I, and, I, and he couldn't really articulate it too well to people that were still stuck in the old world mindset, right? It, it is definitely a mindset thing. Uh, it is something that it's kind of like a virus that needs to to spread to like a mind virus that needs to spread for people to kind of accept a new paradigm. And that's what the internet was, right? And then, you know, 20 years later, it's like, oh, that, that was obvious, right? Of course, we're going to have music on the internet. Of course, we're going to have Spotify. You know, of course, we're going to have YouTube, which is one of the biggest sites in the world. Um, so I think with Ethereum, we're in the same position now where we all know that there is something here, right? There is something special here. We know it's revolutionary. We see the revolution playing out in front of our eyes, but we can never quite pinpoint what how it's going to play out or what's the, what the next killer app is going to be, Right. Um, you know, even even like something like Uniswap, which everyone thinks is obvious, you know, automated market makers have been a thing for like decades. Like this is not a new concept, right? It's just that they didn't work before. But now that you have a, a neutral kind of composable atomic infrastructure like Ethereum, automated market makers are the best thing you can build on Ethereum at this point, right? In terms of product market fit. And, you know, even uh, people that, that created Ethereum like Vitalik, right? And, and the core team, 
they would i mean they wouldn't have been able to tell you exactly how it was going to play out like no one saw DeFi coming but they knew something was special was here they knew building ethereum was going to enable something special they knew that de decentralized applications were going to to work uh, and they believed that and they just they couldn't yeah they couldn't articulate it um to 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 like uh to basically give like any accurate predictions and i don't think we can at this point either give give too too accurate of a prediction like we know DeFi is going to be big we just don't know how it's going to play out we don't know how it's going to enter into the mainstream consciousness we kind of have you know theories that centralized institutions will build on top of these decentralized protocols which i actually think is how it's going to play out but we can't say for sure if uh DeFi will usurp kind of cfi as it's known or, or tradfi for example um, and I, I do agree with Eric that there will be parallel worlds for a while. Uh, people, some people, or at least maybe maybe even most people will always um, prefer that kind of like security of centralization, um, for example, and that, that experience. But the optionality is there to, to, to opt out of that. Just like the internet gave you the optionality to opt out of a lot of centralized kind of things, right? You don't have to use Gmail for your email. You can have your own email server because it's on a neutral protocol, right? You can do all these sorts of things. You can basically run your entire life, you know, off centralized institutions on the internet. Yes, your experience may be, may be a bit worse, right? But you, you get that kind of sovereignty back. Uh, I think that's the same for Ethereum and with DeFi, but I also think that DeFi is going to offer a better product than, than any of the centralized institutions can offer uh, for the sole reason that DeFi on Ethereum, all the apps and everything are open. They will all talk to each other centralized businesses don't want to open themselves up to other centralized businesses for, for, for competitive reasons. They don't want other businesses coming in and seeing all their data and being like, oh, I can see what you're doing. Okay, this is how I'll compete. This is how, I, how I'll outcompete you, for example. So it's just two diff completely different worlds that we're seeing play out. And I mean, my belief is that DeFi wins out in the long run against these centralized institutions. It's it's so funny because like like back in um, uh, 2019 or 18 before kind of the birth of DeFi and we started to see these use cases take hold, this is part of the reason it's been hard to describe Ethereum, right? Because you you net inevitably say something like, yeah, this is a you know an open finance, open money system, and it's going to change everything about the world, right? And somebody looks at you and thinks like, well, show me the use cases. You're crazy. And by the way. You have to say, like, I don't know how it's going to change the world. I don't know what the actual applications are going to be, but I know it's going to change everything, right? That's what's difficult about the Ethereum narrative sometimes. It's it's just such a blank canvas and such um, a, a white, like, open field of, of potential that we can't even predict what the next app <laughs> Yes, the the way I've I've been kind of illustrating the the uniqueness of DeFi is is as a as a as a platform is that in when it comes to building a money Lego, builders have two options. They can build one brand new from scratch, or they can build another one that connects other money Legos. And that's exactly what Anthony was just saying with like uh, uh, all of traditional finance, all of centralized finance is a bunch of walled gardens, and so they only had one option available to them, which is build something from scratch. No, nowhere in centralized finance is the ability to build a new company that is fundamentally based off of other companies, right? There's very little surface area for that. And that's, the, I think, what DeFi is really uh, optimized for is builders who want to build off of other things, right? Like that second option of like, I will build a brand new money Lego 
using other money Legos. And that's something that you, I don't think can be replicated based off of uh, the legacy market. Would you guys say that that's one of the, perhaps the prime feature of DeFi that makes it such a um, thing that can grow so quickly? Yeah, no, I would definitely agree. I mean, if you think about the composability is absolutely insane, right? The, the fact that you can... I mean, just, all right, let's take like the yield farming craze, which I know has a bit of a, you know, people are maybe burnt out on it or whatever. Um, but just think about the fact that uh, Uniswap LP tokens became something, right? So you're, you're providing liquidity to Uniswap, right? And all of a sudden Uniswap came along and said, hey, what if we tokenize your liquidity? It seems so simple now, but that's not something that existed previously. And it, all of a sudden you're using your pooled liquidity as liquidity and collateral on other platforms. And th this is growing, right? Like I think soon we're going to see LP tokens used as like collateral on Maker and all kinds of stuff. Um, but the fact that we can just build on top of like, so you have your base liquidity, all of a sudden you can use that as collateral and liquidity. You, you, you like build up, right? And there's efficiencies gained in all of this. So all of a sudden I've provided Itai, I can now take that and use that somewhere else. That protocol could go take that and use somewhere else. Th that doesn't exist in traditional finance, right? Like not that easily, at least. There's like contracts involved in it. Take not smart contracts, dumb contracts. <laughs> Takes multiple days to like sign this up. So the composability is just crazy. I mean, there's obviously negatives to it where like things become too composable. And they don't think about like Oracle attacks and all this stuff. So we've seen, you know, these flash loan attacks and whatnot. But I absolutely think, you know, we should start like memeing this and be, this should be part of the narrative. But composability is the pitch of DeFi. It truly is. Just what I was talking about a few minutes ago, how anybody can put a line of code out there and be a part of this ecosystem. That is composability, right? And you, like you were just saying, they can build a new money Lego or they, or they can integrate one. Um, this is the power of DeFi and it's not necessary. There's two powers. There's A, anybody can come in and build composability money Legos. There's B, everybody has a trustless, you know, censorship resistant financial economy. So I, I think that part is kind of left out of our narrative. I think we should start doing a little bit better with that because I think it attracts developers It attract like that really starts making people think uh, because shit, it takes me $35 in two days just to send a wire. Um, you know, sending ETH is like the most simple thing you could possibly do on Ethereum. Uh, so yeah, no, I think that's a very powerful aspect of DeFi. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I want to talk a little bit about interoperability and, and what that really means. And I think the way that it's manifested in Ethereum very often is an app's functionality is distilled into a token, a wrapped token of some type. And, and the fact that you can then take that somewhere else, wrap it. You could even imagine some of these assets being used, you know, um, taken off of chain in some respects, and, and you're introducing certain trust assumptions there. But when you think about what that universe could look like and how many of the important assets are already tokenizing on Ethereum, you really start to see this picture emerge of Ethereum potentially becoming this global settlement layer for all of this economic activity. And yes, there are going to be parts that happen in the periphery on other chains, on centralized platforms and so on. But at the core, a lot of those apps are going to originate on Ethereum. And at the very core of a lot of them, I think is going to be Ether because you want to have the most trustless decentralized asset that you can possibly have 
at the heart of some of these things. And so I think that's the long-term vision. And, and I do want to riff off of what you guys were talking about earlier around technology and what, what's possible and what, where we are right now. So there's been a history in terms of um, you know, technological revolutions. When new technology comes around, very often it's kind of emulating what the previous generations of technology could do. It's just making it slightly faster or cheaper or something like that. And I think we're seeing that with DeFi right now. Uh, or that's how it started, I should say. It started mostly with services that people can like wrap their heads around. Okay, yeah. Uh, a lending app that makes sense okay an exchange app i get that but i think where we're headed we're going to start seeing products that we we're going to struggle to understand in some respects and they're going to be things they're going to be niche products that are designed for very specific types of use cases that we can't imagine and some of the biggest consumers of those are going to be robots and machines and not necessarily humans you know and because they can have accounts too they can't have bank accounts you know and that, so that's the cyber that's the cyberpunk future that we're headed towards that ethereum every robot gets a bank account <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they can make one whether you want them to or not. <laughs> That's a really important and good point, by the way, is one way this parallel DeFi universe wins is on efficiency and cost. There are so many humans involved in the traditional finance system that Ethereum can just, I, this sounds bad because it's replacing jobs, but it will replace. And like that is one way that traditional finances realize the power of this is how cost effective it is like visa, the visa usdc news the other day they were uh, they were citing how most customers it costs like up to fifty dollars to do certain transactions and they said on ethereum it costs like 50 cents that's that's a good point like that is one way this you know this ecosystem can take that over yeah yeah i mean i totally agree composability is the thing uh it is what made DeFi grow so much if you just look at the the data itself right and the growth of DeFi during 2020 uh obviously a lot of it can be con attributed to yield farming but why did yield farming work well because of composability without the composability yield farming will not have been a thing ever um, and that's ex for, for the same reasons that the other the other guy spoke about in that we can tokenize these positions, use them to, you know, earn other tokens, for example. It's like, you know, it's just crazy, right? Tokenize your LP position, put it into uh, a contract, earn tokens in another protocol, right? We saw crazy things like vampire attacks happening where SushiSwap stole liquidity from Uniswap and things like that. Like, these are not things you see in the traditional finance system and they don't play out this fast. Like if, if there is, a, it's normally called like a hostile takeover in the traditional system, right? Not a vampire attack, but that, that takes a long time to play out. This played out in a week. Like if, if people remember the SushiSwap saga, like the, the main part of it lasted one week, right? And, and, this, and, and, and it's because of that efficiency as kind of Eric was speaking to, right? It's because of that composability, uh, the incentives, the, the fact that you can move liquidity as quickly as you can move data, um, right, on the internet. It's just, it, it, it's insane. And I think, I mean, we are definitely undersell it because it's like second nature to us now. We understand it. But if we want to sell Ethereum to people, uh, you know, using those examples is, is the first place to go, I think. But at the same time, you know, maybe not a lot of people think about the inefficiencies of the traditional system until they're exposed to Ethereum. I actually think that's another thing Ethereum does. It kind of exposes all the flaws in the old world to people. And they're like, okay, well, why am I doing it like this when I can do it like this? And it takes power away from the incumbents through that kind of mind virus of there is a better way. And I think that's what the internet did as well, right? To, to traditional media, it showed people, it's like, oh, I don't have to listen to like 
the traditional media. I could just go online and, and, and listen to whoever I want to listen to for better or worse. Right. There are, there are problems with that too. But, um, so I think that's another thing that Ethereum unlocks, uh, with, with DeFi specifically. Uh, but yeah, composability is, is the thing without it. None of this would work. Moving value as fast as data, I think is a really awesome line that I think we've all heard before, but I think we forget how powerful that is. Hey guys, there's so much left in this interview. We're about to get into Ether being used as collateral in DeFi. Is Ether actually a unique asset as collateral in Ethereum, or is it just one of the many different choices that Ethereum has to offer? We also talk about staking and whether or not staking has mass appeal. We turn to the conversation of EIP-1559 and burning fees with the interaction of increasing the scale of Ethereum. Does that overall burn more fees in the long term? And lastly, we finish up with a conversation about NFTs and what that means for Ethereum to be able to provide economic activity to more and more types of assets. There's so much more left in this interview. Don't go anywhere. But first, we have to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Bankless Nation. Do you want to go fully bankless, but in the real world? Monolith is the DeFi account that you need. It wraps your ETH address in a bankless Visa card, and it does so much more. It closes the loop from fiat to DeFi. So you can onboard fiat to DAI on Monolith with zero fees. Then you can convert that DAI to ADAI, which is an interest-bearing savings account. Again, zero fees. And then you can spend that interest in the real world on a Visa card. So you can finally buy your cup of coffee with interest earned in DeFi. Guys, this is magic. This is the closest thing to the Holy Grail crypto card and Monolith gives you all of it. You need to download the app at monolith.xyz to get your bankless Visa card. It's optimized for European listeners. They'll be coming to the US soon. And when you get that Visa card, the Monolith card, tweet about it when you do. I love seeing people unpackaging their beautiful bankless Visa cards. It makes me realize that the revolution is here. Search Monolith in the App Store. Wiren is DeFi's first self-building project on Ethereum, focused on producing products for those who are interested in earning yield in DeFi. Wiren's various products are all built to suit each individual investor's preferred level of risk, from various vault strategies that leverage DeFi tokens to the safer earn system which relies on stablecoins. Vaults are aggressive yield farming robots, each with a unique strategy that is designed to maximize the yield of the deposited asset. Wiren employs some of the most informed developers in DeFi to keep the vault strategies updated with the various yield farming opportunities on Ethereum. For customers who are more risk adverse, the Wiren's Earn product may be for you. Earn is a yield-aware dynamic money market that automatically seeks the best interest rates across the various DeFi protocols and regularly migrates your deposited stablecoins between the DeFi protocols that are returning the best yield at the present moment. Wiren is a system that is just a little over four months old, so things are still very much an experiment. However, this hasn't stopped people from depositing over $700 million worth of assets into the Wiren system in order to find yield on Ethereum. Perhaps the people that deposited all this money were tired of constantly making daily transactions to follow the best DeFi interest rates, and maybe the gas fees that they were paying ended up eating too much into their profits. With Wiren, it doesn't remove the risk of these various protocols that it leverages, but it does remove the overhead of constantly trying to make sure you're finding the best yield, and also so that you don't have to pay for gas to switch up your assets. Check out the products that Wiren has to offer at yearn.finance. That's y-e-a-r-n.finance. 
which they also have a nice statistics page to see what other people are doing. But but guys, there's a bunch of 20, there's like $30 billion worth of stable coins on Ethereum. Also, BTC on Ethereum is like at all time highs. Like, why do we need Ether? Like, you know, we can just use the other monies. What, what about what about Ether? Um, uh, DC, let's start with you. You know, I don't view stable coins or WBTC or any other assets as displacing ETH on Ethereum. Um, I think if anything, and we'll start with stable coins, they're really taking on some of that medium of exchange role of money. And I think that's that's appropriate um, in the world that we live in today. You denominate, most people denominate their salary in, in dollars or whatever fiat currency they use. They make purchases in that currency. So it makes sense for a medium of exchange for a lot of different assets to, to be done in, in, in stable coins. I also think though that you're seeing, you're still seeing ether used as a medium of exchange for a lot of those assets. And if you look at like the NFT market, you know, the non-fungible tokens, which are like these artworks, these in-game items and so on, they're tokenized on Ethereum. Almost all of those are denominated in ether, which I think is really interesting. It's kind of like a native economy to Ethereum. So I wouldn't be surprised to see more of that. But I think what that allows us to do is increasingly use ether as this um, programmable store of value um, which I think is really Ether's kind of ultimate destiny. Um, it's really going to become the store of value. And that value through the magic of smart contracts can be transmuted into so many different use cases. Um, and, and I think the other thing is we need to remember that almost all of these stable coins, certainly the custodial stable coins, have real trade-offs. And I think it's easy to forget that sometimes, right? And it's easy to get lazy and just be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to keep x amount of dollars in usdc well don't ever forget that usdc us usdt tether all of those are custodial stable coins and they're backed by us dollars in a bank account hopefully somewhere in usdc i'm pretty confident that they are with tether you know a little less confident um but remember that those those platforms can be censored and if you're dealing with really high value transactions um, and you want to minimize trust, they're not going to be suitable for you. And so that's where I think Ether still has to play a role in the, in this actual decentralized economy, which I do think credibly is going to take longer to emerge. Right. And we, we've been developing pieces and parts of that. But it's natural that we go for the low hanging fruit custodial stuff first. But as we perfect those models, it gives us more insight into how to develop stronger decentralized models. So. So I think it really is a synergistic relationship. It's bringing more economic activity to Ethereum. And I think at the end of the day, you'll hear me harp on this. The two most important things to me are bringing more economic activity to Ethereum and, and, and watching that result in more liquidity for Ether. If we do those two things, I'm very confident that Ethereum is going to change the world. So DC, I, I recently tweeted out the question, like, why aren't you an ETH bull yet? So that was like last week. Uh, of course, it's Twitter. So I got a whole bunch of shit posts, right? Like um, ETH has no scarcity, all of these things, right? But one of the po- one of the the um, replies, which actually is a relatively uh, popular belief, is that ETH is maybe the internet of money, as as you've been talking about, as you've been saying. DeFi is the apps built on top. So think of that as like the Apple or the Facebook or the Amazon or whatever. The wealth didn't go to the internet, to TCPIP. It went to those businesses on top. It went to the application layer. So this one reply says, I'm a DeFi bull, but an ETH bear. What's your response 
to that, to all the people who are like, yeah, permissionless open finance, DeFi bull, I think YFI is great, but ETH asset, meh, not so sure about. Yeah, I mean, and I understand the point of view of some of those folks. They're viewing everything from the orientation of like the legacy system. They're not thinking about the decentralized world that we are creating here. And I think, you know, I, I recently wrote some tweets on, on this, but the value of an asset is, is something that is emergent. It's not something that you can like dictate in advance, right? And, and when the Ethereum devs first created Ethereum, um, all the public perception was that ETH was gas, right? And it's like, oh yeah, we're using ETH as gas. And ETH is still gas, you know, it's still, but, but the gas fees, and I do think this is important for listeners to understand, um, the fee market floats independently um, of the ETH price. So, you know, just because ETH price goes up doesn't mean gas becomes more expensive in US dollar terms or whatever, uh, fiat currency you're using. But I think just being able to kind of think about, um, you know, Ether is is this unique asset in this ecosystem. There is no other asset on Ethereum that will ever have the properties of Ether. And, and, and I think that when you really want to get at that decentralized, parallel decentralized economy that we're talking about, Ether is going to be at the central center of that. Has that been fully developed right now? No. But is it developing? I think it's absolutely developing. I mean, and I think the biggest example is actually in these decentralized lending platforms um, where the most popular collateral by far is Ether. And people are actually depositing and locking up their Ether as a store of value, literally, and they are borrowing stable coins against it. And and that and I think that's or they're creating stable coins through maker maker die, and I think that is fascinating because it completely changes the psychology around ether from something that you burn as gas to something that you're hoarding. And so I go back to my what I was said at the top, the the value of an asset is emergent in how people use it in the market. And maybe the Ethereum developers who created Ethereum never thought that people would be using Ether in this way, but people realized the properties of Ether and are using it in this way. And I think that is that is fascinating. And I think we've, again, barely scratched the surface of that kind of use case. In an older article, I wrote uh, about how all roads on Ethereum lead to Ether. Um, and Eric, I'm, I'm wondering if you want to uh, vet that statement. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think it goes with what Ryan just asked, what DC was responding with. And I'll respond to that initial tweet comment that Ryan was saying. And I think it fits, David, what you just asked. But you couldn't use the internet. Okay, let me, let me put it this way. You can't use Ethereum without ETH. You can't. You have to have it for gas. It's If you want to go a little bit beyond that, you pretty much need it for collateral. That's arguable. But even if you just want to transact with stable coins, you need ETH. You don't need internet coin to use internet. And if you did, people imagine what the price of that would be at this point. I don't even know, right? Like if you had like the smallest percent of that, you would live in a, you know, if connecting uh, to your Wi-Fi, you had to pay internet coins. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. So you do need ETH to transact and that will never change. There's been attempts at economic abstraction. That's not going to happen, right? Especially with proof of stake. You, you are going to have to have ETH to transact on Ethereum. That alone is, you know, is strong enough. And David, what you're just saying, you know, with the relationship between ETH and Ethereum, they go hand in hand to me. I don't understand people that think of it any differently. Um, if you, 
if you are like using Ethereum and let's let's say you come into Ethereum through USDC, right? Um, what are you going to do? You're going to start exploring DeFi. Slowly, you're going to start to think about, okay, what are the benefits of ETH? Okay, you know, it, it's trustless. The, the monetary policy is eventually going down to deflationary. We're moving to proof of stake. You're going to start getting sucked into this, right? You might start thinking about, okay, there's inflation scares in the US, or if I lived in a third world country, my currency, like you're going to start falling into listening to these type of podcast and people that are into Ethereum, you're not going to just like go on and be like, oh yeah, USDC is cool. I'm going to start using DeFi and keep it. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. So I think anybody that's coming into DeFi through stable coins and thinking they're just going to stay there is, you know, delusional to themselves. And I think, you know, the, the most important part is you're always going to need ETH to transact on Ethereum. If, if that is it, that's already a bull case for ETH. You know, people falling into the trap of realizing the traps are probably people falling into the DeFi like realization and, you know, how valuable ETH could be. And, oh, hey, I could have this asset that, you know, my government or someone doesn't tell me that I have to have, but I could have it and I could use this as collateral and take out a loan that, you know, people start to realize how powerful that is. You know, what's funny to me, Eric, is there does seem to be like a double standard in, in crypto where no one would ever say that about Bitcoin. Oh, like, like Bitcoin, the network, but not Bitcoin, the asset. Bitcoin, the network would be fine without Bitcoin, the asset. Yet the standard right. is applied to Ethereum and really Bitcoin as an asset on the Bitcoin network does the same thing. It pays for blocks. Why do you think this double standard exists? Um, scared Bitcoin maximalists. I mean, this is what, I mean, seriously, I mean, this is what it, like, huh? we've all been fighting. Yeah, I mean, this is what Anthony and I have been fighting with Ethub forever now at this point, basically. It, it's true though, right? Like the questions that we were just talking about, if you said that to someone into Bitcoin, they would just shrug you off, right? Like, oh, what if someone come up with USDC? And like, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So I, this is amazing to me that these are the narratives. I think the Ethereum community, you know, Anthony was talking about earlier, since 2018, we've come a long way. And I think people are realizing that ETH is to Ethereum as BTC is to Bitcoin. It's the same thing. Bitcoin is gas money. It just is, right? And like where we jump 10x over that is ETH is trustless collateral. ETH is the staking asset. ETH is going to be burned uh, using 1559. So we're, we're taking those leaps further. And you know what? These, these like FUD narratives from Maximus, they're fine. They come and go. Like we fight them, move on. Um, I agree we're one cycle behind, but that just means we're going to go to freaking whatever, 10K next cycle and we're at 1K now, but that's fine. Um, but they're the same thing at the end of the day. And ETH can be used for more than Bitcoin can right now. Uh, I, ha I had a lot of thoughts listening to the other guys, um, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to come right and say it. Uh, ETH is the most amazing asset in crypto. Uh, it, it will get more amazing as time goes on. There is a extremely strong plan to make it the best asset and to make Ethereum and ETH uh, into and DeFi on all the apps built on top into what I like to call a symbiotic relationship. So there are three value accrual pillars for ETH, right? There is uses trustless collateral within DeFi or whatever else you want to use it with. 
uh, staking, right, that just went live. And we've already seen 1.1, uh, 1.5 million ETH kind of locked up there, which is a billion dollars worth of ETH. And finally, EIP 1559 and paying gas fees. Um, but I think the payment for gas fees is, you know, it, it, I mean, it's bullish because the more use, the more ETH needs to be bought to, to kind of pay gas fees. But I think it becomes like way more bullish once we have fee burning in place. So once we have proof of stake, uh, a proof of stake network, so no more proof of work with Ethereum 1.0, we just have Ethereum 2.0 proof of stake network with credibly low issuance, less than 1% in the worst case. Like if there's like 30 million ETH staked, it's still going to be 1% or less, right? And I don't think we're ever going to get the 30 million ETH staked. Um, if we did, the ETH price would probably be at 10K. Um, but uh, so we have that happening, right? Then take all the activity happening on Ethereum across absolutely everything. Doesn't matter what you're doing. If you are doing a transaction and you're paying ETH gas fees, a, part, a, a portion of that ETH is getting burnt, right? If we can increase the transactional activity to a point where more ETH is being burnt that is being issued a year, ETH becomes deflationary. There is no other asset that can claim that within crypto. Uh, a lot of, uh, I mean, assets that are viewed as store of values within kind of like the meat space, like gold cannot claim this. It is not deflationary. ETH becomes the world's best store of value, uh, in my view, um, out, of, out of absolutely anything, right? So once we have those pieces all in place and we are, we, are, we are doing that, that is the ultimate bull case. And that's exactly why I keep buying ETH even at these prices, right? I am not buying just for today. I am buying for the future because that is a future that I'm extremely confident in that's going to happen. So to go back to the original question about things displacing ETH, that's, that's not going to happen. Just because foreign assets come over, they fill other niches like uh, what well, fill other use cases like stablecoins obviously took the medium of exchange use case away from ETH, which is a good thing. We don't like, you know, like ETH is money, but it is not like great money, right? It is not stable. So it, it's not, it's not like the best money that we can have on the network. So a USD stablecoin kind of fits that, right? WBTC is collateral. I mean, that's centralized collateral and that's fine, right? That's just more liquidity as DC was saying to come into the Ethereum ecosystem. And as I said, once we have fee burning in place, all of these assets just increase Ethereum's network effect and increase ETH's value because it's burning ETH. So yes, you're a foreign asset, but you've got to pay taxes to the network, right? If someone is using that asset, you're paying, you're essentially paying taxes to the Ethereum network, right? Through burning these fees. And you're, um, and, and you know, it's funny because if there's people on the network that don't even like ETH as an asset, well, too bad. If you want to use our network, you need to uh, burn ETH and you need to uh, accrue value to ETH. So that's like the whole bull case there. And to me, it's obvious. And as I said, like still buying ETH based on that thesis. What you described sounds like an extremely, um, you know, disinflationary Austrian style economy, which always like blows my mind when Bitcoiners who would subscribe to like Austrian sort of scarce money principles completely reject ETH's role as a deflationary currency. <laughs> I don't understand it. Blows my mind, but we don't have to solve yeah. that today. This is the whole case. <laughs> just, I mean, it's it's just like everyone has a bias, right? Um, you know, and it's all it's all human psychology. But I think the more middle of the road Bitcoiners, from what I've seen, the the more centrist they see this vision and they they kind of like understand it and they think that fee burning for a network token, uh, so like the the protocol token of Ethereum, 
um, makes a lot of sense and and and, and accrues a lot of value. I am a hundred percent sure that um, you know Bitcoiners would love to have fee burning in 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 Bitcoin for BTC, but they know that it, that bringing just bringing that up as an idea would be kind of like sacrilege. It would never happen because Bitcoin's too ossified, right? So they push back against it. They're like, oh, if we can't do it, then it's a bad idea. Well, looks like we're going to do it, guys, and you can keep dealing with that as as, as you like. <laughs> I'll say that what we're creating in Ethereum is not for Bitcoin maximalists. It's for everyone else in the world. And, and I think that's really important to remember because a lot of the narratives that have been pushed over the past couple of years around Ethereum and Ether as an asset, they're not going to hold up for all of the new entrants that are coming into this market. And when they take the time to understand, even now with Ether's pretty modest in, issuance which is which is fairly actually on par with bitcoin um more or less um you know it's 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 already a lot better than fiat currency first of all but once they understand this concept that anthony's described around fee burning and as the network is used more it's burned and and because of perpetual issuance security will always be guaranteed um that's that's when the sophisticated investors and you already see some of the sophisticated investors like Raul Powell and some of the people that he advises, they're paying attention to this stuff, right? The people who are bringing millions and eventually billions of dollars in the space are paying attention to this stuff. They're not just going to be told the maximalist drivel that has been perpetrated for the past two, three years and take it as sacrosanct. So I think that that is a huge opportunity for Ether as it starts to really go mainstream. Yeah, I, I think that's an A plus point, to be honest. I don't think Ethereum should fall into trying to be Bitcoin. It, like the narratives can be different. We can do things different. There, there's no reason for ETH to try to fall in the footsteps. We could, we'll be fine on our own. Speaking of not following in the footsteps of Bitcoin, uh, and I do want to turn to what Anthony accidentally gave was the uh, future roadmap for the rest of this podcast with his uh, recently recited bull case. <laughs> I want to turn to staking. Um, and so here, here's the, the pessimistic stake on, take on staking, and maybe you guys can answer this. No one wants yield on a volatile cryptocurrency. Like, staking doesn't have mass appeal. Like, who, who people that are interested in yield aren't interested in earning, earning it denominated in this volatile crypto asset that they haven't heard of before? Why, why does staking have mass appeal? Um, let's start with you, Anthony. Uh, I mean, a billion dollars worth of ETH wants yield on their ETH. So I think we can throw out that argument, uh, especially, uh, I mean, no, <laughs> part of that argument, especially because that ETH is also locked, right? So you don't need, like, uh, not well, not all of it, but like a lot of it, right, is locked for one to two years. So you don't even have exit liquidity on that, right? Unless you do some fancy things like with with um, derivatives, but most people aren't going to do that, I, I, I assume. So like we've already seen such a strong outpouring of support for ETH staking, right? And people who want to stake for various reasons. Not everyone is like a profit maximalist who's going to min-max their profits and like try and optimize and squeeze out every last cent, right? People are, humans are different. Humans have different ways of doing things. They're pragmatic creatures. They're going to do what makes sense in their position, right? So, you know, I have uh, a few friends who would never touch DeFi yield farming, but they went straight into staking. They didn't even think about it. There's like, Staking is what I'm going to do. I'm putting my ETH in there. That's it, right? Um, and they have their own reasons for doing that. So I don't, I mean, and it's the same thing with like, uh, I think with Bitcoin mining too, or mining in general, like why mine a volatile asset, right? Well, because that, you know, you, you get to a point where you're where it makes sense to do so because you're profiting from it outside of your expenses too, 
right? So, I mean, I don't think that the volatility of the asset really matters too much. And it matters even less for proof of stake because you don't have those exorbitant ongoing costs as well, right? You can weather the storm much better in a bear market for ETH, right? Even if ETH price drops a lot, your ongoing costs are a lot less. So you can weather the storm. It means you don't have to like dump lots and lots of ETH to cover your costs. And you don't have to like do all these sorts of weird hedging and, and kind of like worrying about things. So I, I mean, I don't think the volatility matters too much. And I think we've already seen evidence of that. Um, and, you know, I, I believe if there was a two-way bridge between ETH1 and ETH2, we would be at a lot more than 1.5 million ETH staked, uh, probably up at like 5 million or something, something crazy. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of like my view on it. Eric, I know that you've gotten into the world of, of staking and tinkering with your validators. What gets you so excited about the concept of staking Ether? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of depth to this question and like what Anthony was just saying too. And I think, you know, we, we need to realize we've been talking about very nascent technologies, right? Like we're talking about investing in something that over the next, I don't know, 20, 30 years, like we're, we're already, what, six, seven years in this journey. It's doing very well. I think it could do much better over the next coming years. Um, so why does staking matter, right? You can take an asset that you're taking a risk on, you know, and, um, volatility and all of this is actually something that attracts people to crypto. You can take this and apply like a traditional finance thing of dividends to it. So not only are you kind of investing in this and, and, and you're probably okay at this point with it going up and down, like, you know, 80% a year or whatever it might be, um, you can also earn yield on that. So th that is something that attracts traditional finance people. You say to someone, hey, so let me just take an example. I've talked to a lot of family and friends about investing in crypto over the years. I'm not someone that goes and reaches out to people and says, hey, you should invest in crypto. If someone comes to me, I'll respond to them. It's much easier for me to pitch, hey, you can invest and also earn a dividend or a yield on your crypto than just saying, hey, you can invest and it might go up or down. Now, it seems a little ridiculous to say that given that it's only like 13% and crypto can go up and down so much, but I've realized how valuable that is to people. And just knowing that you're going to get some type of return on top of the crypto, which they think is hard to value, has been a nice pitch for people to get in. Um, so for me personally, I'll say one more thing. It's obvious. There's a lot of tax reasons for this. You go into crypto, it's going up and down. It might go up a lot in a year. To cash that out, at least in the US, you're probably paying anywhere between 25 to 50% in taxes. You take that ETH and instead you just hold it, you stake it, you earn a yield on top of that. Yes, you're paying yield on that, but you're not paying on the sell amount. So I think there's multiple facets to this. I think it attracts people to say, hey, look, there's this dividend you can get that it, a lot of people like that. Um, and also, if you are a long-term investor, it helps you like avoid taxes and still get some profit out of ETH. There's something about that passive income element that you're talking about eric right like we uh like um we did we did kind of a show and just with the eth calculator to figure out how much it would actually take to retire on eth where you just have enough eth in capital and you're producing enough eth uh, from a yield perspective to just cash it out and kind of ride each year in in retirement 
And I think people, I think you're absolutely right. That's probably an underrated aspect of, of staking. I mean, people buy rental properties. They do all sorts of things that, that um, like might make different levels of financial sense, but they do it for this passive income aspect. Putting on my Bitcoiner hat, because I'm good at that, uh, dividends or yield from Ether is actually dilution, right? We are diluting people that are not staking for in favor of the people that are staking. And so the, the Bitcoiner criticism would be like, well, that you're just creating yield from seniorage. You're, you're actually just diluting away the values of other, of other people's Ether for your value of staked Ether, making Ether not a very compelling asset to hold because you, if you aren't staking it, you're getting diluted. How would you guys, let's start with you, DC. How, would you, um, how do you respond to a criticism like that? So I think the first point in a proof of stake system is that issuance is is far lower than it would be in a proof of work system, and and you do have I mean you do have a you have you have a form of dilution even in a proof of work system in the sense of if there's if there's issuance of supply without a burning mechanism that's introducing new supply and guess what most miners are just dumping it so for all intents and purposes that that is creating that dynamic but i think another important and and, and the sister kind of proposal that's going to be baked into eth2 is there's going to be fee burning in eth2 and that fee burning actually creates a mechanism by which it creates a benefit for all eth holders and i think that's critically important to understand so yes if you're staking your eth you're going to earn a reward but remember that in this fee burning model fees are going to be burned and there's going to be 200 eip 1559 as well and as those fees are burned the ethereum supply will contra contract or it will stay relatively stable you know there'll be periods where it'll oscillate a little bit but the expectation is over time that the ethereum supply stays stable or declines and as that supply declines all holders of ETH benefit from the economic hardening of the asset. So it actually creates, the fee burning is actually a very democratic proposal in that respect because it distributes a benefit to all ETH holders. I, I'm not going to claim to be a master of like economics or anything like that or like um, totally understand the intricacies of how a fiat system works. But I think uh, to DC's point, I mean, I described it before, right? How ETH can potentially become net deflationary due to fee burning and all that good stuff. And, you know, he, DC mentioned that under proof of stake, the issuance is much lower than in a proof of work system. But the the thing is, is that we expect ETH to, to go up in price, right? Maybe not to go up 100% a year into perpetuity or whatever, you know, but we do expect it to keep going up, right? As as the network becomes more valuable um, and, and, it, and it obviously won't go up forever, but if the if the overall issuance is 0.5%, right, for the whole network, but the ETH price goes up much more than that, do, then do people really care that they're being di diluted, right? I mean, I wouldn't. Like, why would I care that I'm being quote-unquote diluted? People care about it with fiat because fiat is pegged and stable, right? It, it, and you are getting kind of like inflated away uh, and your dollar is worth less. It has less purchasing power. But if ETH's going up, right... Uh, and it's going up more than the new issuance uh, in terms of like percentage-wise, then your purchasing power goes up. And that's what really matters. It doesn't really matter about the, the there's more tokens in circulation or anything like that. So uh, yeah, that, that, would, that would be my main pushback. As I said, I, I'm not an expert on all the intricacies here, but that's how I understand it. And that's how I think a lot of people will view it as well. 
I also I want to add a thought, and this has been really I've noticed this in the market really in the past few weeks is we're seeing a lot more staked ether tokens as well that are going to be hitting the market, and and the demand for that is frankly a lot higher than I thought it would be, and and the space has emerged way faster than I thought it would, and I, I'm definitely not going to make any recommendations to use any of those because I think there's a lot of risks with that, and your basic most of them follow some kind of custodial model, some of them are decentralized pools, but you could actually imagine that a lot, oh, there's a whole bunch of ETH that gets staked, and even if you're not running a validator you might be holding staked ether um, and I and I think it's I, I think it's actually going to get easier and easier to run validators over time and to do more of these decentralized pools where even if you don't have 32 ETH you can still stake so we've been dancing around the subject of EIP 1559 so let's just go ahead and dive right into it uh, and one of the things that fascinates me about EIP 1559 is not just the the fee burning but the combination of EIP 1559 and sharding like what happens when we both get scale and also fee burning and, and this is a something I, I don't know the answer to and I want to pose to the group if we increase the amount of block space will increase the amount of block supply, which means we'll probably burn less fees at the start. But does that scale that we have from shards, from having 64 shards, does that increase the potential of total fee burn over time? So this is one of my favorite questions in the space right now. And I'll say, I don't know the answer. I don't know how this is gonna play out, but traditionally it's been the bullish case that there's demand for block space. If your block space is filled up, that's bullish. The reason for that is no one has actually scaled. No no blockchain in demand has scaled. Ethereum and Bitcoin are in demand. They haven't scaled yet. We don't really know how this is going to react when we scale. So let's say we increase Ethereum's capacity 64 times, right? We're not really sure. Are we going to get like two times the current demand or 64 times the current demand. And neither of those cases is bearish in the old world view of block space needs to be in 100% demand, right? Because in each of those cases, Ethereum is more in demand. So now let's put this in the 1559 use case where 1559 is burning fees. If block space is pretty full, we're burning more. Yes, we would want a more in-demand blockchain, but just being two times more in demand is not the worst thing, right? You're still burning a little bit more. I truly don't know how this is going to play out. Um, we're, we saw like today, uh, average gas price was like 330 guay, which is insane. Most people using DeFi, I think we're paying 20 to $30 for a transaction. So the demand is there in high demand times, you know, Maybe tomorrow, the next day, it calms back down to 20 or something like that. I don't know what it is right now. Let's see, 74, so it's still super high. Um, but I think this old narrative of, you know, and I've pushed this narrative on Ethereum, so I'm not going to lie, I'm part of this. But this this current narrative of block space needs to be in demand for the asset to be bullish is going to get thrown out the window when sharding comes along and when layer two comes along. Because what actually matters is how many people are using your blockchain. And we just like kind of package that in this weird narrative of, oh, we're limited. So, you know, people we're at X amount of users, that's our cap, that's bullish. It's actually more bullish if you're under your cap, but you're doing five times as many users. 
10 times, 25, 50. Um, we've just never seen a blockchain actually do that yet because the ones that have promised it don't have users and the ones that have users haven't scaled. So this is going to be one of the more fascinating um, things to watch for me in this space. The interesting thing about all the scaling too is um, like more transactions, probably more users, more users exposed to Ethereum. What asset are they going to want to buy? ETH, right? So that also has a like some sort of um, like byproduct effect. But I want to ask you this, Eric, because probably the biggest criticism I've seen about EIP-1559 is that it's not here yet. <laughs> you know, like there's some doubt that it will ever come to Ethereum. And I want to ask that question. So if we define Ethereum as both, like well, we probably all do, both ETH1 and ETH2, that is Ethereum, it's the Ethereum network, what is the probability that we don't get EIP-1559 because it's not here yet? I would say, if, if you asked me this question six months ago, I would say 25%. Today, I'm going to answer 95%. So I think um, Tim Baiko has should be championed among the entire Ethereum space for taking the lead on 1559. You know, all the client teams and everything, the EF, everyone's helped here. And I think... Finally, the community has realized we're all on the same page. Tim Roughgarden's report came out, and I think that flipped some of the naysayers. I think this is going to happen. I actually will go on record and say I think it's going to happen in 2021 as well. Um, so the, there's been a lot of bullish momentum around 1559 in the last few weeks. And I think it's like a lot of things coming together. So there's not just one happening. Um, but I just want to throw a shout out to Tim because I think you know, Anthony and I talked about this last week on the podcast, but it's not that we have a lack of like genius people in the Ethereum space to make this stuff happen. We actually have a lack of people that are capable of coordinating people to come together and build these things. Um, and I feel like Tim has done that with 1559 and I, I'm very bullish on it getting in at this point. Anthony, I want to ask the next question to you. How does EIP-1559 change the characterization of Ether the Asset? Like, what is Ether the Asset before fee burning? And what does it, that? What does the addition of fee burning, how does that change Ether the Asset? What does that change it into? Yeah, so I think I, I described this a bit before, how it kind of may, you know, potentially, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it's 100% going to be net deflationary at all times, but it potentially turns, you know, ETH into this net deflationary kind of asset. Um, and, you know, fee burning isn't anything new. There are, there are apps that use this, you know, MakerDAO being the famous example. And they're actually criticized for this, right? Uh, where that, that, that people believe that the fee burning mechanism of MakerDAO doesn't actually make sense. Uh, but it make but people uh, the same people praise Ethereum and say and and one five five nine and say that it makes sense for that. And David, you put out a tweet the other day and you you were kind of having trouble you know squaring this in in your head. But I think it it I mean I don't think that if ETH was just a token that was burnt and that was all it would work right. The thing is is that ETH is a lot more than that you know whereas the MKR token really isn't right. MKR is not a store of value right. It's none of that stuff. Um, whereas ETH is, right? Um, ETH is, is used to stake, MKR isn't. So if you do those kind of comparisons there, then you can kind of find the difference and why fee burning makes a lot more sense, right? But on top of that, Ethereum as a network, right, is a lot bigger than than Maker as a, as a protocol. Um, so if we're looking at the fee burning, so 
uh, you know, there's just there's not going to just be those who who use the maker system paying um, MKR fees and getting those burnt. It's going to be absolutely everyone on Ethereum doing anything that's going to be paying those that that fee burning. Um, so yeah, it has to be taken as a holistic thing. It can't just be looked at as you know, one five five nine comes in, we burn ETH, ETH number go up. No, because I mean, ETH number went up before we had even staking, right? We only had ETH as, I guess you could call it like gas or ETH as, um, you know, emergent store of value, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and we, and then all those use cases come together and then fee burning just reinforces that and adds another value accrual pillar for ETH. DC, if somebody wants exposure to Ethereum, the economy, does fee burning allow for that to happen in, in Ether the asset, or is Ether the asset already tracking the Ethereum the economy? Or how do you how do you think about uh, whether or not fee burning enables Ether the asset to be more reflective of Ethereum the economy or not? I I think it does to an extent because I think certainly the more economic activity there is on Ethereum, the more ETH is going to get burned under a fee burning mechanism. And I, you know, I was thinking about Eric's response to your question on, on how sharding will affect things. And, and I agree, it's hard to predict, but my general hypothesis is there will never be enough Ethereum block space on L1. No matter how much you have, it will get used up. And, and if you're talking an order of, if you're talking an increase of even 64x, which, I, and I think most of the current proposals aren't saying we're going to make it 64x overnight. It's, it would be like a rollout process where you're adding shards as capacity, as demand comes online. But basically, I think a lot of activity realistically is going to eventually shift to L2 anyway. And when you think about that, that enables even more transactions. And so, I mean, the goal eventually is millions of, of transactions on these additional layers. And what does that make? That makes those layer one commits by those layer twos even more valuable in terms of the block space that they're willing to pay for and how much they're willing to pay. So I think that if you're interested in Ethereum as an economy, as a platform, Ether is still the best way to gain access to, to that investment upside. And it's the most diversified way. Because, I mean, while I think DeFi will continue to be a big driver, and I do think there's some great DeFi projects which I'm invested in, um, there's going to be other things that come up, like the NFT economy, which is actually denominated primarily in Ether, as I mentioned earlier. There's going to be all kinds of other use cases. We don't know which project token is going to necessarily do best over five years or 10 years. I don't even know if any of these projects will necessarily be the ones that are dominant then i do know that the network will still use ether and i do know that ether will still be the hardest uh you know with eip 1559 and the most ubiquitous and the most used and useful asset on the platform there's a bunch of debate as to how do we get access to exposure to ethereum right and we have the the dpi token which is the tracker of DeFi. it's like a DeFi index and then we, there's been debate as to like, does Ether get you a share of the Ethereum economy? Does it give you upside exposure to the growth of Ethereum? Uh, Eric, how do you see the relationship between Ether, the asset, and Ethereum, the economy? Yeah, I mean, as far as like getting exposure to ETH and DeFi, I, I would still pick ETH first. Um, I think, you know, earlier we talked about cycles, right? So it starts with Bitcoin is in a mature cycle. ETH to me is in a mid to mature cycle. DeFi is in a young to mid maturity cycle. So if, if you, it, it all depends on like your risk tolerance, how old you are, how much you have to invest, how much you have to lose, like all these things, right? So 
if you want exposure to ETH and DeFi, it's ETH and like DPI, right? Um, but as far as like, I totally agree with what DC just said. If you want just true exposure to Ethereum, it's ETH, right? It is always going to be used for gas. It's always going to be the base collateral. It's going to be what you use to stake. So if you're looking for just a safe, let's put these in huge quotes, safe versus like, you know, traditional investments, right? It's ETH. Um, if you want to add a little risk to your portfolio, something that sure, maybe could go to zero. Maybe we're all crazy. There is the 1% scenario where that exists, right? Um, you hop into uh, DeFi pools index or you hop into, you know, YFI or whatever your favorite DeFi coin is these days. Um, put that as a part of your portfolio. But if you want exposure to a new financial economy, to DeFi, to a trustless financial internet, just hold ETH. You're not going to be disappointed. Maybe you're chasing some things one day or the other, but trust me, you're not going to be disappointed in that. Eric, I think you made someone's head explode when we just called uh, Ether and, and Bitcoin the uh, the conservative, <laughs> less risky assets. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it's right, all relative. It's, a, it's relative to the exactly. rest of the crypto economy. I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think uh, on the risk thing, I think that's a really good point. But, you know, I think the reason why it takes uh, big money so long to come into things is because they don't like risk, right? They want things to be quote unquote de-risked. And I guess BTC is at that point now for a lot of people, right? Where it's like, you know, it's 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 not going to zero. We're, we're, we're confident in that. We're confident that the narratives make sense uh, and that, you know, everything around it makes sense. We're going to buy it because we feel like it's de-risked. ETH will, as, as Eric said, ETH will move into that on the maturity scale over time. And then DeFi will as well. But it's 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 not like rocket science. Like if you're investing in an early stage company, no matter if it's like a DeFi kind of company or a traditional company or whatever, um, it's still risky, right? It's a risky venture. There's there's the same set of risks. Uh, so you're, you're, you're basically taking on that risk for higher potential upside. Uh, and, you know, it's it's very hard to outperform the, the, the indexes in the traditional finance system, just like it's very hard to outperform the kind of, I guess, what everyone indexes to in crypto, BTC, ETH, uh, and maybe potentially the DeFi Pulse index as well. So it's just, it's, it's literally always all about risk. And that's how you should manage, you know, your, yourself and your investments. And that's not investment advice, but I think that's just common sense. This has been a really awesome conversation about Ethereum, the economy, and Ether, the asset. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about NFTs because that is a whole, its own conversation in of itself. We've dedicated entire podcasts to this. We'll probably dedicate more entire podcasts to this, but it definitely belongs in the conversation of what Ethereum is as an economy. What are NFTs and as a tool for Ethereum, what do they allow Ethereum as an economy to do? Yeah, so, um, you know, NFT stands for non-fungible tokens. And that's in contrast to this concept of fungible tokens. So I think it's helpful to define by exclusion a little bit. So fungible tokens are like Ether or like DAI or even like USDC and other tokens where it doesn't matter if you get one or the other. They're all basically equivalent and can be used for the same purposes. NFTs are different in the sense of each one that is tokenized is unique in some way or it has or has the ability to be unique. And I think we've seen NFTs emerge in a few different areas um, that are interesting. And fundamentally, I think there's three areas that people should be keeping an eye out for. So first is like, 
artwork and gaming and i think that's the easiest to kind of understand at this point everyone's seen these nfts on rarible and other marketplaces like OpenSea, where you can go on and you can buy um, ownership rights to a digital artwork now of course anyone can view the the gif or whatever file format backs that but you're the one that owns it and you're the one that has the right to kind of sell that token to someone else and there's some ex exclusivity within that and i think that's why these things have value which which is also why I think the traditional art market has value. And I think the other side of that are these gaming NFTs, which are also super exciting. And we see that in games like Axie Infinity and Gods Unchained, where these are in-game items that you can basically use um, as part of the game. In some cases, you can level them up. You can you can mate them with each other and create new <laughs> NFTs, uh, you know, CryptoKitty style, the first NFT game. Um, but there's a ton of potential there. And some of those Axies, are going for huge amounts of dollars. I mean, I think there was one that sold for like $100,000 and we've seen CryptoKitties go for huge amounts too. So they border this line, they, they bridge this gap between like a piece of artwork slash status symbol and an in-game item. And I think we've barely scratched the surface there. A second category I think is gonna be around like access rights. And having an NFT in your wallet allows you to do certain things. It's like a membership token, right? And I think there's a lot of value to that too, because you could imagine someone issuing a membership token, limiting the amount and saying, we're only going to have a thousand members, but you can sell your token to whomever you want. And you got you to gotta sell the whole thing. You can't sell like a part of it. Um, and I think that is, that's a very interesting set of use cases that I think we'll also see a lot of activity on. And then the third is really around kind of financial products. And some people don't think of NFTs within that context, but we've seen in the urine ecosystem, they put a lot of effort into kind of thinking about how to create these unique financial contracts, which are insured and are tradable. And they're NFTs in the sense of they have to be unique because each contract has unique properties, but that's another fundamental use of NFTs. So I, I and I think a lot, when a lot of people talk about NFTs, they're just talking about gaming, but you really need to think about all those use cases. Um, and I think in order for NFTs to really take off on Ethereum, that is where we need some ability to scale. And I think we are seeing some roll up centric solutions like Gods Unchained is rolling out Immutable X, which is going to be an NFT focused L2, and that's going to be available for others to use. So I'm really excited to see what happens in this space. Yeah, to me, the way I see NFTs is is exactly how you uh, described it at the start, where like first there's cash and monies, and we call Ethereum the Internet of Money. But I also I rather prefer the term Internet of Value because if you have just money, like you're not then we're not talking about specific assets, right? Your your house, the deed to your house, is a real world NFT, right? It's it's very unique. It, it is registered to one specific thing, and it's not cash. And so as Ethereum as an internet of value, especially when we start to integrate the conversation of like more economic activity plus EIP 1559, having, having like this surface area of NFTs where any type of asset can be represented, any unique asset can be represented, could add just more overall transactional volume on to the Ethereum economy. So yeah, it's the financial internet, David. Get with the new <laughs> financial. Internet. Oh, I have not. That's that is not heard that one. That is news to me. <laughs> no, no, I I totally agree with you. And like, just I'll just say quickly. Um, I think where we were talking earlier, where we're burning transaction fees, and why do you need ETH? It's these use cases that are going to branch out 
from Ethereum. NFTs, we're going to branch out and all of a sudden you're like, wait, people need ETH to transact to get NFTs. You're, wait, we're burning ETH? to Like all of a sudden these use cases count up and the amount of burnt ETH, the amount of ETH people need to accumulate to use Ethereum starts going up. So I, I totally agree. It's not just... It goes beyond, and we're talking about now the financial internet, and probably even going beyond that. Once you know, I I I, I shit on the world computer, but we could bring that back someday when we're ready. Um, so I think we'll get there. But these use cases just start blossoming, and you start realizing how important ETH actually is. Yeah, I I basically mirror exactly what what Eric and DC have said there. Um, I think. I mean, it's going to bring in a new cohort of people, NFTs, for sure. We're already seeing that, right? With people doing collaborations with Nifty Gateway. I'm sure many of the people that came in and saw what he was doing did not know what crypto was beforehand, did not know what Ethereum was and any of that sort of stuff. So I'm bullish on that, uh, you know, on, on that bringing a whole cohort of new people because, I mean, you know, DeFi is fun and everything, but it, it, it only, I mean, the, the deep in the weeds DeFi stuff only attracts a certain kind of person, one that like is happy to take on a lot of risk, right? Do a lot of speculation and everything like that. At least DeFi as it exists today. Obviously, we want to get DeFi to a point where it's like, you know, has all kind of the economy running through it and it appeals to everyone, but that's it, not what it is today. Whereas, you know, NFTs appeal to a whole entire subset of people that are in the art ecosystem, the gaming ecosystem, right? Interested in like insurance products too, I mean, you know, NFTs, we, we saw you could tokenize insurance uh, positions, right? And things like that. So um, I'm just really bullish on that. How about interested in collecting uh, figurines? Anthony, is that <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could tokenize the, I guess, like the ownership of them. Uh, that would that would work uh, to, to represent. Like, I'm, I'm just looking at Anthony's shelves of figurines behind him on, uh, on his zoo background here. Um, well, guys, this, this has been fantastic. And I, I, I think we kind of, want to end with this because um i think we're all like bitcoin hit all-time highs um ethereum ether is back over 600 in price like um the highest price it's been two years two and a half years something like that i feel like we all realize that we have come out of the the bear market right we're, we're kind of on the other side right now we're on the ascent um last time we had an ascent like this was Ethereum of uh, 2017, and now we're Ethereum 2020. I guess my question is, what's different? 2017 versus 2020. What are some of the, the the new strengths we have? The new weaknesses? What's kind of different about this bull run and the Ethereum of 2020? Maybe we'll start with you, Anthony. I think everything is different. Uh, I think I like I I can't really. Like I was in, in Ethereum in 2017 throughout the whole bull market then. Um, I can't really find too many similarities. Uh, I think maybe the community is quite similar in terms of like the, the the core community in terms of their values, what they want to see happen and everything like that. But the network has evolved to to kind of like be a home for so many new use cases. I mean, MakerDAO didn't launch until December 2017. So essentially, we didn't really have anything really DeFi within 2017, right? That we know as DeFi today. The main use case was ICOs, right? Um, which obviously ended very badly for a lot of people uh, and ended very badly for the ETH price after ETH went up uh, because of that. So, I mean, yeah, without going into like everything that that, that has changed, I, I do really think that, that it's a totally different game now. Uh, everyone that was in Ethereum in 2017 that that may have left and comes back now will see that and be like, wow, this is like nothing like I remember. 
for, for good reasons. It's not like we got worse. We got like so much better, right? And we became a serious kind of financial network rather than a plaything or a casino. Because really, I, I believe that 2017 Ethereum was a casino, even though people like to call DeFi a casino. No, that, that's nothing compared to what happened in 2017, right? Um, and, and all the speculation that went on then, I think back then the price got way ahead of where the technology was. You know, people legitimately thought ETH2 was launching in 2017, right? Uh, and bought ETH because of that. And that was another hype narrative at the time. So this time we're delivering all the things that were promised back then, right? And more. So yeah, total, just totally different ecosystems. You, you can compare ev absolutely everything that happened and, and, and find a difference there. I would say, I think we earned this. Like, so the famous Vitalik tweet is, did we earn this when Ethereum went above or around a thousand last time? I think we earned it this time. I truly do believe that. Like, I think we've built very cool products, products that can be used by people across the world, you know, innovative products, interesting products. Um, I think we have years to go still, but I, I think we can say at this point we've earned it. And I, I think, you know, looking at ETH price 652 right now, who knows what it is when this podcast goes out, um, probably anywhere between 400 and a thousand. Um, <laughs> I, I do, I feel good about looking at it now. Truly when it first went up to that 1400, I, I, you know, it was, just, it felt like just pure speculation and all that. And I, I think this feels good. And I think, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not a price predictor. I don't know where it's going, but I, I think we're building something great here. Well, Eric, we're definitely getting to price predictions. So maybe you should start chewing on your uh, answer to that, <laughs> to that question soon. But uh, while, while you chew on that answer, I want to turn to DC and get his take on that, on the same, uh, same question. Yeah. You know, back at the height of the 2017 bull market, the most exciting thing was like crypto kitties and that was all the rage and just think how far we've come since then in terms of impactful apps and by the way i think crypto kitties was actually really cool for its time and very innovative and chartered a lot of really interesting things in the nft space but DeFi in general did not really exist in the way that it does today and i think anthony touched on this too like during the last cycle ETH was really being used primarily as that medium of exchange um, to buy tokens and being being stuffed into project treasuries, just waiting to be sold, basically, in a lot of cases. And I don't think that was really the most compelling or most valuable use of Ether as a financial asset. I think what's really different to me this time is how ETH is being used as a financial asset now, which is increasingly as the store of value. And, you know, two years ago or three years ago, Ether to most people was still gas and that sometimes MLE money. Now Ether is on the verge of becoming a macro asset that's being sought after by very wealthy investors to diversify their portfolios into alternative assets. And soon they're going to realize it's something that's becoming more scarce and can generate income. So, uh, you know, to me, it's really the emergence of ETH, Ether as a financial asset that I think is going to be the defining feature of this bull run. You know, DC, before we get to price predictions for everyone, because those are fun, for a lot of people listening, especially because I think this this bull market will, will play out over months and people might refer back to this episode, they weren't around in 2017. This will be their first crypto bull market, right? You guys have been through bull markets. What advice do you have for someone who's going through their first bull market? What would you say to them? What would you say to a younger you? <laughs> I'll start us off. And I think that um, it's important to keep 
your head on straight and it's important to not take on risk that you can't afford to take on. And I think that's really important because it can be very easy to get caught up in the hype as things are going up in value. And honestly, no one knows really where the top is or how far it will fall and when it will fall. You know, people don't know exactly when those things will occur. But at some point, if this builds up like other crypto cycles, it will have a huge blow off top. And, you know, you need to keep a level head. And certainly, you know, for me, Ether is a long term investment. I want to stake as much of it as I can. I want to keep it because I know it's going to be over multiple cycles that we really establish the value of Ether. But you need to be careful, especially if you're if you're getting in now, I think this is a great time to be paying attention. First of all, I think if you're coming in a year from now, it's probably going to be a lot more frenzied and there's going to be a lot of people making promises on projects. You know, and Ethereum is a permissionless platform, too. Just because something is created on Ethereum or any other chain doesn't necessarily make it good. Anyone can build anything on Ethereum. So I think be careful for people who are trying to part you from your money. Yeah, I would say this is a game of survival. Survive in advance. Survive the years. You know, take some profits every once in a while. There's nothing wrong with taking some fiat profits and, you know, making your life a little bit better. But hold on to your ETH. Don't lose it. Don't leverage. Totally agree with DC. Don't overextend yourself. Um, survive in advance. Practice good risk management. Um, I think, you know, I actually in 2017, I didn't actually get too ahead of myself. I held most of my ETH and I didn't speculate with most of it. Um, I maybe used 10% of my stack or something to speculate um, on ICOs and things like that. But in general, yeah, practice, practice proper, proper risk management. Don't feel kind of regret when you see, you know, you, you, you put money into something and then it goes like 10 times, for example, right? And then you say to yourself, oh, I should have put more money in, right? Don't let that take hold because then you'll do it on the next investment and you'll get wrecked, right? So be sure to always uh, be comfortable with the decision you're making at the time and, and, and understand that, yes, you know, you're investing in something and you're investing in it because you believe it can go up, but you also realize that there's downside involved too and it can go down, right? So you don't want to overinvest and overexpose yourself to any one investment, um, you know, d depending. I mean, uh, as Eric said before in massive quotes, the safer investments within crypto, obviously BTC and ETH compared to the rest of crypto, right? But the, the safest investment, it's not even an investment, the safest place to be is cash, but there's no, there's hardly any risk there, right? Um, unless you talk to Bitcoiners, although say cash is going to, is going to collapse. But um, yeah, just in general, manage your risk um, and, and don't get too ahead of yourself and don't let FOMO take hold because FOMO means, means wrecked really in my eyes because you don't think straight. And I, I you know, we've all been there. You know, I'm not going to say that I'm like the perfect risk manager or anything like that, but, um, you know, prepare yourself for what's coming because the frenzies, I think is going to get quite crazy um, as we, as we move into this new bull market. Turning into the last question I want to ask before we get into price predictions, it's, it's often said that Ethereum and Ether is just one cycle behind Bitcoin. And I think that's a pretty easy thing for people to get their heads wrapped around. But also, if you peel back the layers, there seems to be some incongruencies with that. Because in, in this current uh, cycle for Bitcoin is the time is the cycle where a lot of big institutions are putting their balance sheets into Bitcoin. And now we are also seeing that with Ether at the same moment of time. And that's Ether ahead, one cycle ahead of Bitcoin. And then at the same time, you know, Ethereum has development. Like we have this whole ETH2 thing. There's just at some point in time, like this whole like one cycle behind Bitcoin, I think is going to run out. So like when, when Ethereum, when you guys see Ethereum in its trajectory as an ecosystem, 
how how do you guys see like is is are we able to actually like quote unquote skip ahead a cycle or what does like the future adoption of ethereum look like especially in a world where you know 2020 just shook up everyone's mind about how the world works like how quickly could we actually see some of these things adopted um eric i think you've been through the most cycles out of all of us so let's start with you yeah i would say it can happen faster than we think and i i do think what happened in 2020 with covid and all this stuff like remote life, remote banking, this plays into the Ethereum narrative, right? There's no doubt about that. Um, and yeah, just because you're one cycle behind doesn't mean you can't hop five cycles ahead, right? That just means like your narrative so far hasn't been adopted. It hasn't been understood. That's fine. Like we're on this podcast helping the narrative, right? Let's not kid ourselves. We're trying to like push this along and, you know, make people understand it. But I think we could accelerate way past. And I, I think, you know, I said earlier, Bitcoin has done a good job at capturing the digital gold narrative. To me, that's boring. I think we can blow 10 to 100 times past that. Um, and that could happen all at once. But, you know, you never, markets are never about fundamentals in the present. Markets are about fundamentals of their current cycle. So markets go through cycles, right? Multiple year bear cycles, multiple year bear bull cycles. And bear cycles, you build your narrative and bull cycles, you talk about them, you build on them. And then it happens again, right? Like this is every market, not just crypto. So um, we'll see where the Ethereum narrative gets us at the end of this cycle. We're very, very, very early, in my opinion, still in this cycle. As Maybe not price, but narrative wise, we are. Um, so... I think we could hop ahead. Do I think we're, you know, I'm not going to make like flipping price predictions. I'm more going to talk about does mainstream understand the narrative of Ethereum versus the narrative of Bitcoin digital gold? Do I think we're going to get there this bull cycle? No, uh, that's not a prediction of where price is going to be. I think next cycle is where Ethereum takes over. And I think that's because Bitcoin's kind of the gateway drug that, you know, brings people in and, oh, this crypto thing, and they start to learn. But um, I think each time to shine is next bull. Anthony, I was waiting for Eric to drop the F word, and he said flipping. <laughs> is, is it possible this cycle, Anthony? Oh, man. I'm going to, I mean, I've always believed in it. Um, but I mean, it is something that I'd love to see happen, but I wouldn't put a high kind of probability anytime soon. Just, I mean, simply because of the, the amount of money pouring into like Bitcoin as opposed to Ethereum, right? Um, you know, I mean, maybe it could briefly happen during some really crazy mania, but in terms of like a sustainable flipping, right? Where ETH is literally number one and it shows no signs of being, you know, reflipped by Bitcoin, for example. I, I don't see that happening for quite a while. Uh, Bitcoin has a lot more momentum behind it, a lot more years under its belt. As Eric was saying, with kind of cycles and things like that, um, I think, you know, I actually think Ethereum, like to what I was saying earlier, is going to play, it, that its cycle is going to play out a lot faster than, 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 than Bitcoin has just because it's later on within the kind of overall crypto cycle, for example, right? Like Bitcoin is the gateway drug. And then, you know, once you have one drug, you, you, you know, you're more prone to trying the other ones, right? Um, so it's, it's the same thing here. And that's what I was saying at the start where I was like, you know, once you're outside of crypto, Bitcoin's what you hear about, you know, it's what you come into it with. But then once you're in crypto, you discover Ethereum, DeFi, DeFi tokens, all this sort of stuff. And you're a lot more uh, comfortable getting involved with it once you have entered through through Bitcoin. So yeah, Bitcoin took what, 11, 12 years to get to this point where it is today. Ethereum's going to do it in one to two, I reckon, in terms of like 
getting uh, that con mainstream consciousness in terms of uh, those big fund managers, right? They're already allocating to ETH. Um, and I believe that uh, they're not going to, any other assets that they consider, I mean, I, I can't see any other asset that even comes close to BTC and ETH in terms of like appealing to those people. So yeah, it's going to happen a lot faster, even though I still think, you know, ETH is one cycle behind Bitcoin. It's just, it's not going to take like many years as it has for Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, I would echo what the guys have said here, and I would also kind of, you know, I'll frame it this way. I really think Bitcoin has helped prime the environment um, for for the crypto revolution, and, and in a lot of ways, it's proved the value proposition of the entire asset class, which is really all about digital scarcity. And I think it, it took several cycles for people to understand that because it's completely counter to everything they've ever grown up with in this digital revolution, which really started in the 90s. Everything's copy paste. Most people grew up, most even most most nerds like you guys grew up downloading illegal software, you know, because you couldn't afford to buy it or whatever, you know. I mean, that's the whole mindset of, of how a lot of people view digital digital um, assets was they're all copy pasteable. So the idea of digital scarcity took some time for people to understand. But now that they understand it, I think that sophisticated investors, especially at first, are going to very quickly grasp the value proposition of Ethereum. And they're very quickly going to see the value proposition of DeFi. And I think even in DeFi, you're going to see legacy institutions enter into it, not because they're just trying to draft off a hot crypto narrative. You'll see that too, but because it's cheaper and because they can offer services that they couldn't offer before. So I think there's a real value proposition here and, and the understanding will come as people start to see the value in these products. So I think we could definitely move a lot faster than Bitcoin did over say 10 years. Gentlemen, this has been great. I think Eric is still preparing his answer. So we'll start with DC. Price prediction for ETH at the top of the cycle. I don't typically give price predictions. I want to start with a 30 second anecdote. So I was at a blockchain, I was at a blockchain conference in DC in April, 2017 and Bitcoin had just retaken its previous like all time high fairly durably. It broke through like a thousand, you know, in the previous high back in 2013, 14 was about a thousand. And so they asked the audience, what are your price predictions? And, and one guy at the end of the year, and one guy was like 2000, someone else was like 5,000. So one person said 10,000 and everybody <laughs> looked at him and gasped. And so, so, so I think my broader point is bull markets can get a lot crazier than you think they can. And, and, and they, they also might not all fulfill all of your hopes and dreams, but I'm going to put out a range of somewhere between 4,000 and 20,000. Wow. ETH price, 4,000, wow. 20,000. Anthony. Yeah. I'm happy with that in most of those numbers. Can you top yeah. that, Anthony? Can you meet that? <laughs> Can you be more <laughs> bullish, Anthony? <laughs> I, I, ha I have not been shy about my price prediction for ETH, for anyone that follows uh, me on Twitter especially, of uh, $10,000. And I have on-chain proof of my bullishness because I created a set on token sets called the <laughs> ETH Maximalist set on in January of this year when ETH was basically... So creating that at January of this year, I don't think people understand how, um, how hard that was to do because... ETH was in the low hundreds and 2019 was a terrible year for ETH. It basically returned like 2% on the year or something. So I created that in January saying this set will basically sell all of its ETH only when ETH gets to $10,000. And obviously I was called crazy back then. I'm still called crazy now. We're up at the 650s, right? Um, and I, I mean, I'm going to be called crazy. And then one day 
you know, we, I believe we're going to get to 10,000 and people are going to be like, wow, wow, you were right. And I'm no longer crazy. So when I, I, I can agree with um, DC that we could see a 20K as well because of the craziness of bull markets. But in terms of like, I guess maybe a conservative estimate, <laughs> $10,000 is, is what I've stuck to um, and what I've tried to like, I guess, kind of meme about. But, and I actually believe in it, right? I, I, I don't say it just to, just to kind of like, um, you know, get engagement or whatever. I say it because I believe it. And as I said, I have on-chain proof that I've believed it for quite a while. Yeah, Anthony has been the person beating the ETH to 10K drum when it wasn't a popular thing to... to. I, I remember talking to Anthony way back when saying like, you know, ETH is never going to go to 10K. That's way too high. And then all of a sudden when DeFi summer came around, I, re- I saw my like mental modeling around the price of Ether shift. I was like, <laughs> 10K is way too low. <laughs> That's how it happens. Hashtag road to 10K. Is that the right hashtag, Anthony? Yeah, that's oh, it. I gotta, I gotta start using it more. Um, I'm actually curious <laughs> to hear Eric now because Eric actually not, not as. I don't know if he's getting ready to sober us up or like give us <laughs> more juice. I'm looking at him right now. I mean, I guess I'm the bear. I guess I'm the bear in the room here. So I, I'm going with 2,500. And so I, I think every cycle that goes on in crypto is going to be harder to go higher and higher. Uh, the markets are more mature. There's more shorting options. There's more, you know options in general to short long whatever straddle whatever your position is um i think when eth went from six dollars to fourteen twenty, there was no way to short it it was pretty much just a bulls game right and i don't think we live in that world now i'm not expecting bitcoin to go to 500k like some people um I'm also not expecting the same downside that we saw recently. So I think that the floor is moving up. I don't think we're going to see 90% retraces in Bitcoin and ETH like we saw in the past. So just because I'm saying 2,500 for this cycle doesn't mean that we're going back to, you know, whatever, 200 and waiting three years. I personally think we're past that. But I think the market's a little bit more mature now where we're not going to see these absolute insane rallies. So I'll go with 2,500. 2,500 to 20K is the prediction from our three ETH bulls. Guys, uh, I think this episode delivered what we promised. I think we were a bit bullish ETH. This is not the episode to listen to if you're trying to stop buying ETH. Someone recently tweeted this out that um, like they every time they listen to Bankless, they have to buy more ETH. And um, I feel like this is not going to help that individual. (laughs) I feel sorry for them after listening to this. (laughs) If they've got a house, they're probably going to sell it. (laughs) 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 Well, guys, it's been a fantastic year. And um, we are looking forward so much to, to 2021. Some action items, of course. This is not financial advice but maybe you should consider some ETH for your portfolio. Obviously, of course, guys, number two, enjoy the holidays. Catch up on some previous podcasts. Follow these gentlemen. We will include their Twitter handles in the show notes. And of course, if you've got time, you want to give Bankless a gift, you can always give us a five-star review on itunes how are we doing with those five stars david we are not at 200 yet and that is our near tomb goal we want 200 five star reviews because let's be real here if we get five star reviews more people will listen to the bankless podcast and more people will specifically listen to this episode which will make <laughs> eth 10k just all of us an assured reality so if you if you could go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us those five star reviews so we could get eth to 10k that would be uh, greatly appreciated by everyone here 
You heard it. It's a prereq. All right, guys. Risks and disclaimers. Of course, none of this was financial advice. We never claim that it was. Uh, ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. So is DeFi. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but thanks for joining us on the Bankless Program.